This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Just came back from DevCon, still not fully recovered. And uh, Alex Gillette at Rise was making fun of me and said, it's because you're an old man and you can't hang anymore. And the problem is not that we stayed out too late, although we probably stayed out too late. Thanks, Wade. Um, The problem is there's just so much rich content and so many phenomenal people. And this is going to be slightly longer than normal preamble because content has been you know, really over the last two years for me, a pet passion because so many conferences just suck at it, right? And DevCon is a, is different and it's intentionally different. Jared, I'm going to have you explain that in a second. But, you know, if I look at, you know, what is the value of Money 2020 is everyone is there, right? Everyone, literally everyone, you can book yourself solid meeting to meeting to meeting. And if I look at it, and super useful to have that density. If I look at, you know, the money experience, I love when I'm invited out to Utah to work with MX, there, the audience is so big, not everyone's there, but it's highly curated, right? Like only someone who really kind of cares at a level around experience is going to MX, right? And the value of the program we do at South by Southwest is it's none of the people you normally hang out with if you work in fintech, right? That, that's the reason you go there is it's not a fintech conference. Yeah. DevCon is in kind of a league of its own of the conferences. And Jared, I want to turn the mic over to you. There's that level of intentionality about what did DevCon set out to do? Because I think that it'd be a misnomer if people looked at it and go, oh, that's Moves User Conference. It is not Moves User Conference. Yeah, it, 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 you're absolutely right. It is not Moves User Conference. It's not Moves Product Conference. It's not Moves Sales Conference. It's actually a testament of Move's most important core value, which is give first. And the event is a give back to the individuals in the world who matter most to our origin story, which is developers. So Move, before Move was a, was a company, a commercial entity, was a series of open source projects that Wade Arnold said, hey, I think I got a, I got something here. <laughs> Let me scratch yeah. my own itch and just give it away for free and see if developers find this useful. Short of the long is they did and a community formed around this. And while we're still figuring out how to tame this community, how to give back to them, how to engage them in all the right ways, this conference is really for developers within the FinTech ecosystem to come together, as a give back to them, but also because there's nothing else like it. There's a huge void for developers and technical builders in the financial services and in the fintech space. And we just realized that keenly as a bunch of developers and fintech builders. Yeah. And I think that's one of the keys to understand about who goes to DevCon is it really is developers. And I would say 
probably equal amounts product people. I ran into a lot of kind of technical product people and some kind of marketing product people, you know, but you're thinking about a problem at a different level. Like so much of it is at either a technical level or at a user experience level, right? The, the actual, the problem I'm going to solve. And I think one of the more interesting concepts, because normally I hate, you know, kind of panels that are brought together because people talk in platitudes. These were not platitudes. And one of the most interesting concepts that I think DevCon does is this idea of roadblock talks. And <clears throat> you introduced the concept first, you know, what is a roadblock talk? And then why don't we talk about some of our favorites? Sure. Um, because this conference is for builders, uh, specifically software builders and technical product builders, anyone who's ever written a line of code in their life or deployed on a Friday knows that things go badly sometimes. They go wrong. Tests fail, deployments fail, uh, things get hacked. Um, things just are hard. Building software is really freaking hard. And a lot of times we feel like we're alone as a builder or as a developer in that journey. Thank God for things like GitHub. Thank God, thank God for things like, oh, like um, you know, communities and forms and um, just ways to, to kind of share the struggles that we're working through and find the answers to really common problems. But roadblock talks are really highlighting folks that have done it before, have built and launched successful products or built and launched unsuccessful products mm -hmm. and giving back some insights as to, hey, here's how I built this thing that it, that actually went crazy and was awesome. And now I'm a gajillionaire, maybe. <laughs> um, here's how you can avoid some of the pitfalls I had along the way. Or, hey, I had a, one or two or three failed companies before. Here's the patterns I realized in my endeavors while I was building these platforms and technical products. Here's how to learn from what I did, not make those mistakes to the technical founders or the builders in the room. Because we just want you to be successful. We want everyone to win. So I think the roadblock talk is really good because it's um, it's authentic and it's humbling. It's not people up there talking about, look at me and these awesome things that you should wear you should buy from me. It's, hey, let me kind of open the curtains back a little bit and show you just how human I am, just how hard this thing is so that you can get to your successful place faster. Well, and, you know, to put a super fine point on it you know one that i absolutely loved was erica newland from orum yes right event-based architectures for payment platforms right you are not going to find typical conference platitudes you know thrown around there right like that is deep in the weeds of really understanding some of these things and the issues that come with it. And, you know, I love how she talked about, like, you know, we zigged and then we wish we had zagged, you know, but we only figured that out. And, you know, after some period of time, um, you know, one I unexpectedly found super interesting was from a mover herself, like defining service boundaries for facilitating transfers, right? Like yeah. what? Like, yeah. um, you know, super interesting to hear about the roadblocks, the places that people, get caught up in I loved your phrase around kind of the the humanness of it right because it's technical but it's people being vulnerable talking about things that you know went wrong or that they didn't understand and they had to dig their way through yeah um, did you expect that it, it would work out that way this level of vulnerability attached to it you know it's actually hard um I actually reviewed, I had the privilege of reviewing every single submission from the call for papers to the slideshows that came in, the abstracts, everything. So I reviewed all of the content 
And you could tell that some people were just leaning in hard, like they got it. They've done something like this similar before, but some people showed up with deep level of technical experience and expertise and were used to selling right? They're used to trying to kind of put up a little bit of a guardrail around, I don't want people to see the vulnerable side of me. And we had conversations with each and every one of those people. Hey, these are builders just like you. They're here to learn and grow. And they desperately want to hear about your personal story, your professional story based on what you've done. So it's okay to go a little bit vulnerable, tell a little, a few kind of anecdotes or quirks about um, maybe how you screwed this thing up. And we said, hey, you've probably effed something up in your in your career. These people want to figure out how to not eff it up in their career too. And I think when you say that to them, the light bulb clicks and they're like, yes, okay. And they come back with 30% or 40% of the content completely revised. And it, and it is just them speaking way more authentically. And I think that produces a better engagement and certainly a better kind of uh, like feeling people come out of that feeling like I'm connected to this person and I'm feeling inspired by what I learned. I have some tools that I can take back. That's going to help me again with build confidence and hopefully some speed to, to success, the successful launch of a product. And part of that started from the top and it's a shame that, you know, it was a day three talk, but the, you know, Wade, um, Arnold, obviously founder of Move, as we described, Ben Metz from the CTO of Jack Henry, Terry Angelos of Drive Wealth, you know, the fireside that they had around building and scaling fintech, right? And the challenges they had, the level of vulnerability that this was not the high polish, everything has gone right. And if you don't, you know, look and feel like me, you're not as successful of me. There was, you know, there was a lot of talk about some of the challenges that came out of, you know, Bano and transitions to Jack Henry and you know, how do you manage such a large organization and what you're setting out to build? Yeah. I mean, I think on one hand, I don't want to give Wade too much credit. When you're the CEO or the CTO, you definitely get to kind of you do you do understand like eh, that most of the people in the room can't come for me you know like i'm sitting pretty high but it does take a very um humble individual to allow themselves to be seen that way and i totally agree with you that people like terry angelos and ben metz and wade arnold they kind of tower over the room their presence not just uh, their professional presence, but their personal presence and kind of the, the aura they bring. And so I'm really encouraged to see that they're also kind of in line or not in line, but uh, they fit in very much. They make up the the ethos that the conference is in this kind of giving, sharing, vulnerable elements of the, of the talks. And I think, like I said, it, it just really speaks to a more highly engaged audience. And I think people feeling like they really want to come back because they feel connected to the content and individuals. Yeah. And that level of connectivity, you know, I guess maybe it shouldn't be surprising given how active the move Slack channel is in terms yeah. of people giving and coming back. Why don't we talk about the Slack channel? Because there might yeah. be listeners that they may actually exist that don't know that there is a move Slack channel and a move GitHub. Why don't you talk about what goes on there for a second? And then when you get the influx of users, you'll know where they came from. Yeah, definitely. So um, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that before Move was a company, it was a series of open source projects. And so we have a community that's been growing like weeds. Thank you to all the developers out there that have 
contributed publicly to any one of the 41 open source repos that Move has put up on our GitHub. Um, also, shout out to anyone who's cloned or forked those repos as well. That's okay. Um, we prefer that you work and collaborate in public, but if you need to fork those things, that's okay. Um, but we have an entire Slack channel that we realized, hey, there's non-developers um, that want to get involved, or there's people that want to have synchronous conversations that don't really work in the asynchronous format that GitHub really lends itself to. And so we just opened up a Slack. We have dedicated channels for individuals to kind of slide into the, the topics and the uh, the, the sub-communities, if you will, that they want, like ACH and ISO um, 2022. And so we have dedicated channels for people to kind of find their people and find the questions and the answers that they're looking yep. for. That Slack channel is move-io.slack.com. Um, it's not fully open, but if you uh, go in and you request to be invited, I'll approve it. Uh, probably, uh, unless you have some they crazy... Approve, they approved me, so... you know, If you got in, anyone. anyone can get in, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's tons of people there, and it's not just developers. Um, we have uh, we have founders, we have executives. There's definitely some VCs in there sniffing around for the next uh, deployment of capital as well. So, But it is, it's a very open and inclusive um, kind of environment, and we just want to encourage folks to get the answers that they're looking for. And we want to connect people at the right times in the right places. Yeah. And so who should be thinking about joining, right? Like you did mention mm -hmm. the VCs. Like, do you have to be completely technically proficient? Uh, no, like, no, like, I love the VCs. Uh, I have a job because Move is a venture-backed company. And so thank you, VCs, for my paycheck, right? But um, and keeping us keeping the lights on while we continue to scale this business to you know a, a profitable state, but the community isn't actually built for them, right? I mean, if there's developers in there and builders in there, they're saying, "Hey, I really wish that there were some VCs in here so I can get connected with." Then for sure, I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay because I still think that they do add value. Yeah. I do think they add value. Some of these folks are incredibly um, well-connected and also have very uh, wide and broad perspectives on both the industry and also on deep knowledge expertise on, on spaces. And so I think that there's oftentimes just we're surprised to see the answers that some of the VC folks can actually come up with on technical and functional questions that are posed in the community. Well, so no, short answer is no, you don't have to be technical to be a part of the community um, by any stretch, but there are builders there that, that it did, the genesis is around developers. Uh, our ask is just, you know, if you, if you show up um, and lurking is fine, but we'd like to see people engage, introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, what you're building, what you're working on. And if you're looking for some, something to be connected to, just raise your hand and, Someone in the community, probably me or Wade, will help you get plugged into the places well, that you're trying to go. I think the litmus test for participation is you need to be interested in engaging with builders, right? Like I should be yes. giving no one technical advice unless it involves like putting Legos together. Yeah. Um, but oh, and also no shilling. Please don't do not come to our community to sell your product. That yeah. will be a quick way to get yourself uh, like yeah. reminded that this is a place for building and uh, building communities and building products. Uh, selling your wares is 
there's probably another Slack community for that. Yeah. But I, I would say for those who are interested in contributing to those who build, right? Because there's a whole yes. support layer around this. Like, I love the contributions from like Matt at Lithic around regulatory piece, right? Yeah. Things yeah. that builders need to know that, hey, you know, I'm a code expert. I am not a regulatory expert. You know, I, I need to learn these things and I have questions or like, you know, Shamir and I love to opine on like, you know, the business model of neobanks and what didn't work for Burke Street and simple and how do you think about it, right? Yeah. Through the cycles, right? But it is about building first and foremost. That, that's exactly right. I mean, let's not get it twisted. There's a fintech memes channel, right? So, uh, you, you know, there's- But not there's nearly some... as active as it should be. That's, like that's I go true. to it once a day and it can be utterly disappointing like that it isn't filled. Yeah, so if you got good fintech memes, please, we need you, show up. Jason needs some uh, needs to be fed. Jason needs to be fed. Now, one of the other interesting pieces of this last DevCon, I want to shift yeah. back to kind of community and this idea of connectivity, but also to talk about inclusivity. And I'm still curious how I got tapped for this, but you and I got to be on a panel together, right? Of the for those not watching this, but listening to it or haven't seen it before, Jason is a straight white guy talking about diversity, equity, inclusion with, yeah. you put together a rock star panel, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like you put together a rock star, star panel and you made it, a, DEI was a very prominent, you know, part of the MOVE conference. What was the genesis and the thinking there? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. There's a major problem in our industry. And this, uh, this whole conference, the event is about learning, growing, and fixing things, building to fix things. Um, our financial system uh, has legacy software that needs to be replaced, ripped out, updated. We have uh, all kinds of opportunities. And I think this is one that we all feel and see and understand, but we're not talking about it as prominently as we need to be. And I think that's because a, a couple of reasons. One, it's uncomfortable. This is a this is a conversation that a lot of people aren't comfortable having or even hearing. And so I think it's important for us to kind of continue to create space to have conversations around diversity, inclusion, and equity, and to normalize the conversation without ostracizing or alienating people. But let's talk about what's happening. Let's talk about what we're seeing. Let's talk about what we're going through. Let's talk about people who are um, struggling. And let's talk about people who are doing it right. And so what we wanted to do is, again, this, I tell people FinTech DevCon is not your grandpa's FinTech conference. Like, you know, this is a little bit different. And so I did want to bring a lot of the, the stuff that I had learned at GitHub around building ERGs and inclusive products there um, into the forefront of what FinTech DevCon was. Both the tech industry, uh, software, and the financial service industry struggle on these topics. And so we just wanted to say, hey, let's just let's just get real here. Let's just sit down and have an honest conversation about what's happening at a high level. And then let's start that conversation and, and keep it going. I think um, you know, I think we, we there was a point where we go, okay, what stage does this go on? And that conversation was like two seconds long. It was like, this is a main stage conversation. 
and it's not going to be conflicting with other talks like yeah. this is that important it needs to be something that no one has any excuses about oh i couldn't make a decision no like this is it and so we really did try hard to put it in the forefront because it matters not just to the people on the panel and the founders that move but i think it matters to the entire industry and i'm hoping that we did a good job of articulating not just what's going on but why it matters and how it can actually make us better professionals and better companies with higher valuations yeah well in you know i told you this privately and i think you were concerned that you know you scared me off with when i made the <laughs> comment about great you know throw the you know, straight white guy up there yeah. um but i was scared i'm not gonna lie like the hmm. there but it also was honored that you know you would trust me up there because if I'm not willing to put myself in a conversation that on a very big stage I could screw up and say something wrong, yeah. and if I'm shirking that conversation, and there are a whole bunch of others you know who look a lot like me that aren't therefore not engaging, right? There's like very little upside of going into the thing where you could screw up and you know look bad or unintentionally damage somebody else because I haven't had your experience. Yeah. We probably should have said for the people that are listening and not watching, I I am a black man in fintech uh moderating this panel uh and I think you're absolutely right. I think you you know, here's the thing. We we handpicked the people that we want to be on this panel. And I think the reason why you're perfect outside of the fact that you are probably in the top 0.1% of people that know how to navigate a conversation and control the, you know, just have an <laughs> incredible conversation with people is that you've done some of this work and we knew that, and we knew that you were an ally in this effort. And, and I think that people really, the, the spotlight goes on kind of two things in DE and I, and it's like, oh, let's shine a, a light on all the positive things that underrepresented folks are doing. And let's shine a negative light on all the straight white guys. And I think that's exactly the wrong thing for us to be thinking about. It's like, hey, actually, let's shine a big, bright light on all the allies and uplift them and tell their stories so that people of color, women, underrepresented folks actually know who's representing them. So I think, I don't think I know you are an ally in this way and in this space. And we need to be hearing from folks like you because oftentimes folks that look like you in our industry hold the keys to unlocking promotion, financial wellness, all kinds of different things. And so the allies, I think, are the one of the spotlights we're missing. And I think that you kind of perfectly encapsulated that that viewpoint. And we appreciate the fact that you're able to do it with us. Well, I don't want the takeaway to be Jason thinks he's got it all figured out and he's a great ally because I still like I've been working on it for a long time and I still screw it up. The takeaway yeah. I want is people need to be willing to engage in hard conversations and be vulnerable about things like this. Yeah. You know, in the preparation, Joan Susie, who you know is a female, but she's passionate about aging. The angle for her around um, you know, inclusivity is around generational changes. But you know, and I've known Joan a long time. Engaging with her, she will take you to the mat to have, you know, a conversation and call you out if some of your beliefs are wrong. And some of the prep she and I did, I mean, we had out that was one of the other things that was different is the preparation for this panel was not get in for 45 minutes and talk. 
I had individual conversations. Fortunately, I'd known Asya Bradley before, got to know Julie Rasmussen. Like we had multiple exploratory conversations around this that I feel like preparing for this panel actually made me a better person for it in terms of opening my eyes and to learn from that. I think if anything, I got more out of it than I delivered in terms of other value, except maybe again, to drive home, don't be afraid to have the conversations, including, you know, I think it goes both ways <clears throat> that recognize that having a difficult conversation. And if somebody screws up, you need to hold, you know, point out that they screwed up. Yeah, but do it in a way that w- what we're incentivizing is not shut up. I I totally agree. I had the same feeling. Um, every time I have these conversations, I feel like I'm growing a little bit, and I feel like I did on this panel preparation as well. But that should always be the goal, right? It should never be ostracize, uh, divide. It should always be how do we bring this person in? How do we bring this organization in? How do we help them feel comfortable about the conversation with the goal of having positive impact and a positive outcome and progress on these really challenging things. And that's how I always hold myself when I'm approaching these things. I hope that, um, I hope that everyone else that's listening and everyone else that is pursuing these things approaches it that way as well, because we've got a lot of division in the world. We've got a lot of problems and there's a lot of things for us to get hung up on why we're different and how, this person yeah. is bad or that thing is bad. And really it's, it's, that's not super helpful to these conversations. And so um, I'm glad that you understand that. And I think everyone on that panel did a great job. I think of bringing folks in and kind of focusing on education and, and positive impact and outcome. Well, as we need to wrap this up, you know, sure. I, one of the things I think that is super useful about DevCon from a planning point of view next year, same yeah. kind of bat time, same bat channel, and just to fill into the logistics for people, that would be Denver at the uh, end of August, or I guess the back half of August to say, or yep. early September when you guys finalize it again, but you know, mark your calendars. Yep. But where should people be you know, signing up to make sure that they are on the list that they can register as soon as it's available? Yeah. So um, first and foremost, if you're interested in sponsoring, because I had plenty of people tell me, I wish I could have sponsored, sponsorship at fintechdevcon.io. I am on the backside of the email and I'm happy to get you plugged in. In terms of following us, um, you can follow our Twitter, fintechdevcon, uh, and you can follow, I think we have a LinkedIn page as well. I'll have to check that out. But certainly on our Twitter and um, also hello at fintechdevcon email us. We'll give you info. It's very early stages of planning for next year. But if you email hello at FinTech DevCon, we'll put you on the wait list for the newsletter and the announcements so that you can be first in, um, first in line for when the tickets go on sale for next year. Awesome. Thanks, Jared, for putting on a phenomenal conference and one that I look forward to participating in again next year. Thanks for being a part of it, Jason. It was an honor and I can't wait to be a part of it next year too. <laughs> From crypto to ESG and real-time payments, the world is changing fast. These new realities need bold thinking. It's time to start your day with a bold move. But bold moves take preparation. To help you stay ahead and reach the future faster, FIS brings you Rise, sending the latest industry expertise, news, and information directly to your inbox. 
Fuel your competitive advantage and get the latest FIS expert insights on news, trends and disruptors influencing the financial services market today. A bold future awaits you. Sign up now. Go to fisglobal.com slash rise. That's fisglobal.com slash R-I-S-E to subscribe. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Welcome back to Breaking Banks, the number one fintech and banking podcast globally in 180 countries. This week, we have a a good friend of mine from Australia, down under, joining us again to talk about his new book. We're going to jump straight into it. Ross Dawson, futurist, engineer, author, um, and generally nice guy. Welcome back to Breaking Banks, man. Thanks, Brett. Great to be uh, great to be here. Now, um, of course, you've been spending the last uh, um, well, you know, few months ramping up for your book launch. It's coming out this week, uh, September the 8th, I guess, this this week. September 6th, the book's September out. 6th, sorry. My apologies. Um, and uh, so we wanted to dive into it. It's called Thriving on Overload. Really interesting uh, topic, the five powers for success in a world of exponential information. Um, now, this this is a little bit of a um, depression. Well, not a departure from from your role as a futurist, which you're obviously very well known for, but it's really an application of that thinking in terms of how the world has changed and how you know humanity and organizations are adapting to it. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, so the way the genesis of the book is that I had a proposal for a book about how to think about the future. Right. And I uh, got it to my agent. My agent says, no, I don't think I can sell this. There's too many futurist books out there. But there's one chapter in this book, which you've titled Thriving on Overload, which if you make that into a book, I can sell that one. And so as it happens, when I reframed the proposal and wrote the book Thriving on Overload, it actually was managed to contain all of the things which I were almost all the things which I was trying to put in the book about thinking about the future. But you because- just framed it differently, right? Yeah, so but it's far more relevant, and it's an interesting, you know, it's really interesting exercise to reframe that. All right, let's think about the future to thriving on overload. Thriving on overload is one of those things that everybody experiences. We all have far more information than we can possibly imagine all the time. You know, I, I suppose. <laughs> not predicted this but in the sense but in 1997 i wrote an article called thriving on overload problem or opportunity and of course my answer in the article was that it's an opportunity uh but of course whilst we were overloaded then we hadn't seen anything yet we're more and more overloaded that is the context of our lives our context of our lives is too much information so making sense of that being able to shift from that overwhelm which many people experience to one to say, well, actually, these information is incredible resources to make sense of the world, to make better decisions, to see opportunities, to start new businesses, to create a better future. So in a way, all of the tools of the futurist are relevant to all of us in dealing with the massive overload that we face. And so I think this is a, a nice way to take these tools and practices of the futurist, which, you know, again, has been 24 years that I've been uh, practicing professional futurist and learned uh, not a lot on the way. 
as since you were 15, much of what right? I've learned. Sorry, <laughs> since you were 15. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so you you interviewed a bunch of really interesting people and got their insights on it. You've you've got a podcast which you have have produced for this. It's all available, obviously, on on thrivingonoverload.com. But let me ask you this question: um, Is there anything that came out of those interviews that um, you know cr- cr- took you in a slightly different direction uh, in terms of the content of the book from from what you'd earlier planned? There's well, there's many. I suppose one of the most interesting things is the diversity of what I call information masters, and so these that they're information masters, these cool people term, yeah. effort, effortlessly are able to be on top of uh, enormous amount of information. And some people are incredibly structured. Uh, so there's um, you know, some who have great structure to their, their lives and how they uh, do that. So Max Levchin, who founder of co-founder of PayPal. And, and a firm. Uh, running a yeah, firm. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so he says he has an incredible structure to his life. So he says oh, he doesn't need to think doesn't need to make any decisions because he knows exactly what everything is, is structured in his life. And that's not for everybody, but that obviously works for him and, and what he does. So Tim O'Reilly is a lovely uh, thinker and he has one, one of the great insights which came from him is that he said that he took a course once on tracking animals and hunting. Now, he's not, not the sort of guy who likes shooting animals, but tracking animals is interesting. So is some one of the masters in the space who had uh, learned from the uh, Native, uh, Native, in, uh, Native Americans from how to track animals. And so his thing is you're just, you are sensing your openness to what the signals around you. So he says, information comes to me. He doesn't go out and actually looks for it. Mm. It actually comes to that and he says, if I see something more than once, then I know that I'm meant to see that. So it's an you know extraordinary different approach to a lot of the other sort of type A people. But you know, Tim, of course, has you know extraordinary track record in being able to perceive the technologies of the future. And so the, you know, those are I suppose the diversity is one of the most interesting insights. And many, many of those really fascinating, different approaches to making sense of information. I mean, you know, you, you and I have obviously talked about this, uh, you know, dur- during the creation of the book and so forth. Um, you know, me personally, I I find that I've had to curate my um, information and messaging sources to get the right information that I want. Email has become the most useless tool. Um, for me, um, you know, except in targeted instances, um, because I just get, I'm getting, you know, 800 emails a day and you just can't possibly read them all. So it just becomes noise. And, you know, no matter how much I try and unsubscribe from lists and so forth, it just seems to keep coming. So now I, you know, I tell people to contact me through text or through, um, you know, LinkedIn messaging, um, you know, Twitter direct messages, things like that have become the alternate ways to get in touch with me to to do things but you know i think part of that is is the curation but um 
you, do you talk about the density of information that people have to deal with today compared with in the past? You know, there's one of those great illustrations that if you were born in, um, you know, the early 1900s, you know, most people would read the equivalent of a New York Times newspaper in their life. And now, you know, we're, we're obviously getting zettabytes of content produced. So how, how has that changed people's perception of information and their processing generally from a, let's call it an evolutionary aspect? So this is a really important aspect is that our cognition as humans and given our evolutionary history is not well suited to our current environment. So we, uh, we start to get stress responses uh, and this starts to essentially give us a state of a dysfunctional state of overwhelm. So this is one of the, the critical aspects is our essentially our emotional or you know, in a way our the, the neurochemical responses to what we perceive as not just stress, but you know, almost attacks on us through the extent of information which we feel we have to keep up with. So this is where I, I believe that we can evolve our cognition positively. Uh, there's almost like two directions at the moment, where if you follow the social media algorithms, you're probably, essentially, your brain is getting stupider. It is less able to pay attention. Your attention is getting fragmented. You are, your brain is not functioning as well. You're less able to spend focused times and to build bodies of knowledge. But we can respond by changing our cognition and our response and how it is we engage with information. And one of them is simply an attitudinal one of moving from uh, overwhelm or overloads to abundance and say, well, rather than saying, I've got too much information, saying, I've got all the information I should possibly want, Could I will choose yeah. only the information that I want from that. Right. So if you've got a fire hose, you don't try to drink a fire hose. That's, that's not going to do you any good. It's not going to quench your thirst very well. So you say, well, all right, well, here's a, here's a pool of really interesting uh, uh, insight, which I will go to. So it's making the choices. So it is about choice. And that reframe of attitude means that we can start to say, these are resources that I can use to achieve my objectives. How do you think artificial, in artificial intelligence as a personal artifact, you know, having your personal AI might change the way we filter and process information? Is that something you get into? I know you've, you've thought about it. It's, it's not something I only touch on briefly in the book, and it is more subject for next books as well as just, just practices. And I, I suppose my broad comment is I am astounded in 2022, how little AI is helping us to filter information well. And yeah, it's exactly. something where I, ex I expected a long time ago, we'd get these incredible filters, would recommend us the information that we wanted and uh, be able to get rid of the things which we don't. And well, yeah, we've got spam filters and probably there's a bunch of spam we're not seeing, which, you know, we're, we're, we're just grateful. <laughs> we should be more grateful for <laughs> that the AI is getting rid of. So there's a bunch of things in the background. But there's still work to be done. Yep. And the thing is, in terms of actually not just getting rid of what isn't relevant, but also helping us surface what is relevant, I think this is an enormous opportunity uh, to filter that. And there's you know, obviously quite a few companies that have tried this along the way, you know, 
flipboards and your uh, there's you know a number of other you know news 360 and other ones which try to create filters for news but uh, I, I still don't see anything which is that compelling yet and I think that there's one thing it tells us that it's obviously very hard uh, but I think there's a long way to go and I think there's a some parallels with Spotify. Okay. And uh, do you remember Last FM? Yes, of course. So, for those who don't remember or weren't there at the time, Last FM started, I think, 2002, possibly, as a music recommendation algorithm. Uh, being able to look at, you know, we essentially could vote on the music we listen to, but how long we listen to it, it'd be able to feed that into its algorithm to be able to recommend us more. And I, I still think it's, you know, maybe it's my memory, but it was the best music recommendation algorithm that was out there. Spotify is not bad, but it still gets stuck in the music it recommends. It gets into these, you know, echo chambers equivalent. Of, right, right. You know, where you still just get the same music over and over again. So I've come up with this idea of the serendipity dial. And I've been talking about this for like 15 years. And I still think it's important, this idea of saying, well, sometimes we want more serendipity, more accidents in terms of saying, oh, well, I, I'd like to see something which is a bit outside my normal purview, something which is, oh, that's that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And uh, whether it's in our music or our news, or sometimes we just want to say, look, I just want to know the news. I just want to listen to what I know I want to, what I, you know, the music I like, I, I, I know I like. But that's the sort of things we need to be exploring is the ways in which we can tune the AI and our technologies to provide us with the breadth and to and broaden your horizons as well. Hey, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Now, one of the uh, terms uh, you had, it's actually on the Small Business Trends uh, website, talking about how to become an information processing ninja. So what are some of the tools that we can use to get better at processing information like you, you're talking about? In so the information processing, to my mind, is, is a cognition. So this is around how do we take information to make it knowledge and insight. So what's interesting there is information by itself is usually not very valuable at all. It's only when it's information is taken yeah, in yeah. context, the connections, when we've you know, been able to build these structures of knowledge that it does start to become useful and relevant and actionable. So I'm interested in what I call the connected note-taking tools. So there's uh, Obsidian and Rome Research, uh, some of the uh, most popular ones now, LogSec. Uh, you know, these are related to what has become an increasingly popular domain called Zettelkasten, which is basically you know taking notes and connecting them. And these are tools where we can build knowledge. And I think another another frame around this is building visual frameworks and something which I've done and I strongly encourage in the book as well is saying, let's try to take these pieces of information and see how they connect by drawing them, by putting them in some software to see what comes out of them in terms of a structure. So I think there's many tactical tools in terms of filtering and getting all your email newsletters in one place and to structure things and to capture and tag things and so on. I think there's a lot of tactical tools and we have a new course, uh, course Thriving on Overload, which delves, delves a lot more into the processes and the tools and the tactics 
than we're able to put into the book. And I think really the the big frame around that, uh, you know, being the ninja is building that knowledge. How do you pull this together to create insight? Uh, and you know, you 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 the fire hose illustration or the fire hydrant illustration of information. You know, you've you've um, used is is a great illustration. But um, you know, in ter- in terms of the overload component, how how do you quantify? the level of information density that we're having to cope with in society today. I know you talk about the 24-hour news cycles and things like that, but is there a simple sort of way to understand the dynamic, why this is such an essential skill set today compared with, say, 30, 40 years ago pre-internet? Well, the uh, we have well, if you have some raw figures here, 7.3 exabytes of data every hour being produced. Uh, and that, so the growth rate is you know, still in the double digits. We have uh, average American spends 11 hours on media every day. And that's, yeah, which is a large that's chunk of our weekly hours. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, for some, it's many, it's more than that. You know, there's many people, uh, young people that spend six, seven, eight hours a day on TikTok alone. Wow. Wow. Which is quite a quite astounding. Yeah, I, I used some. I had some good stats, but these like for 2015, which I put in augmented. But one was um, that um, you know we create the equivalent of all the books ever written in history. Like we create that every like 80 days or something. It was back in 2015 in terms of pure content. But as as you're talking about exabytes and zettabytes and petabytes and all of these. Uh, these terms. What about, um, you know, I, I, I know you don't necessarily get into it in, in the book, but what do you think about the energy implications of all of this data that we're dealing with? The, the, you know, put these, your futurist hat on now. Well, I mean, I think, well, there's a number of ways of slicing that. The, it's the, the processing power is the, the one thing in terms of energy consumption for uh the data and that's that's why crypto has potentially such strong energy implications but also if we just look at the total uh the data storage globally is two percent of current energy consumption so that's something which will continue to grow uh we are going to start to get some more interesting forms of data storage beyond current ones and one of the most interesting ones is dna storage where the information, you know, the density of information storage in DNA is potentially many, many times what we have on current uh, systems. Information retrieval might not be as fast, but if we start to structure data where there is some, some is where we know that we need that faster, others where there is uh, slower retrieval times are acceptable, then we might be able to start to out, uh, you know, push out some kinds of data storage onto new forms of new storage, mediums. including DNA. Oh, yeah. So, so these are. So, I think the the more concerning issue around energy is around the processing uh, power required for a lot of these systems. So, the storage is not as critical, but that's still something which is driving an immense amount of uh, electricity usage, and where. Definitely need to get some solutions there. And um, 
how do people deal with, um, you know, I know Julie Albright and others have sort of tackled this, but for those that you call information masters, do they need a timeout from digital? Do they express that as important or do um, many say, no, it's it's fine. I don't mind being digitally connected 100% of the time. Well, I think the information masters I, I know and engage with all take time out. And in my book, I identify six attention modes. You know, they include scanning and assimilating and deep diving and exploring and so on. But but one of them, and one of the most important attention modes is regenerating. So the, the scientific research is, is clear that our brain does need space in order to be able to pay attention when times when we want to pay attention we need to have a more open, expansive frame for being able to regenerate that attention so that uh, what, what has been expended can come back and we can use that more. And so there's a, some great uh, research done over an extensive period of time by a husband-wife uh, couple called the Kaplans, where they looked at uh, what's called it attention restoration therapy. And essentially like that. that's... That essentially is being in nature. And there's a lot of evidence, this this fact that you get, it's there's no clear thing to focus on. Things are moving around right, you, right. whether it's the wind and the trees or the oceans or the movements. These are things which mean your brain can start to refocus. That is the soft fascination they talk about, where you can be fascinated with the movement of the wind and the trees and how that's moving. And that regenerates your attention. And they distinguish that from the hard fascination, for example, watching a Netflix show, which doesn't regenerate your attention because it's actually still this expand, you know, you might feel that you are taking a break and you're having a rest and you're watching a movie, but that does not regenerate your attention the same way as truly watching the sky or the clouds or the trees. Or in the case of Ross Dawson, going down hitting the, uh, the Bondo beach water, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's, that's my way of regenerating is get in the ocean. So mine is, mine is, mine is the fire pit sitting in front of the fire pit, (laughs) chilling out, watching the flames. That's my regeneration or, you know, sitting up on the balcony and in at the place we got in Thailand. But, um, you know, uh, in terms of um, uh, efficiency, at dealing with information overload and the, the ability to curate and process that information. When you talk to people like a firm founder and a Riley Media founder and these sort of people who've been successful at, at business, what's the link between this capability in terms of processing information and curating it and success in terms of ap- application on a business side? Is that something you get into? Well, essentially, that's the entire thesis of my book, is that the key factor for success in this world is your ability to thrive with information. Just, you know, unless you are, well, even if you are a professional athlete, you know, you're, let alone sort of an entrepreneur, everything you do is predicated on the information you take in on the mental models, your understanding of the world, of how people behave, around how the economy is structured, around what people respond to, around what the technologies that there are, around how those are changing. Everything that we do, every decision we make, all that we are trying to create depends on our ability to take in and uh, make sense of information in a world where there is either far too much or 
as much as you want, depending on how you frame that. So this is the fundamental capability for success. So I think that currently, the, the very fact of being successful suggests that you must be in some sense an information master. You are able right. to, uh, to take and process that. And that is become, going to become even more the case as the fundamental capability for success is this ability to thrive on unlimited information. What about in, in terms of staying ahead of the curve in you know areas where there's such technological advancements that we we see um you know how do how, how do the people that you interviewed um and and yourself as a futurist how do you stay in touch with all of these developments you just mentioned dna um you know storage as an example how do you stay on top of all those types of topics um and um you know where you know how do you create that information flow uh, for the right information for you as a futurist? Well, well, whenever anybody used to ask me that question, I'd said read my book when I write it. <laughs> so, so I mean, there's a lot. There's a, I suppose there's a it's in there. many pieces to it, but I suppose part of it is is having the structures in which to put what I, I sense into, and a lot of that is my visual frameworks and beginning to build these frameworks of where I see the future going, which sensitizes me to the sorts of signals that I'm looking at. So I start to say, all right, well, storage is going to become more and more important. What are the ways in which we might be able to improve our amount of storage since we're evidently going to need exponentially more? And that starts to uncover things like uh, DNA storage. We can start to see that some of the challenges from climate change and we can sorry, say oh what are the responses what are the type what are we doing with new energy structures what are we doing with distribution what are we doing with the, what are the political structures around this sensitizes to the relevant signals so when we start to see the directions we this and start to say well this is where i see this is a possible or likely path then without saying that is the future saying well this is the directions i see now, what are the signals which will help me interpret to that? Does this are there signals which suggest this is right? Are there signals which suggest this is wrong? Are there ones which will put this on track? So all of the ways of thinking, thinking about the future is one of the best ways to sensitize you to the signals in your present that will uh, help you make better decisions to drive future success. And just briefly before we wrap up on, on the book, um, you're not a big fan of multitasking either, are you? you, you, you well, generally... well, the, the the evidence is basically pretty is is done. So if if you're walking and chewing gum, that's fine. Or if you're uh, chopping vegetables while listening to a podcast, that's fine too. But if you're trying to do two cogn- high load cognitive tasks, basically the Studies, fMRI studies show that you are not actually multitasking. You're switching rapidly between two. That has a high cognitive load. And in fact, you will never perform as well. So it's just, I'll, I'll take the evidence of the science that cool. we can't effectively multitask. So do one thing at a time is probably good advice. There you go. So, uh, Ross Dawson, it's been a great pleasure to have you back on the show. People can, of course, go to rossdawson.com to check out more information about you. But where can we find more information on the book, Thriving on Overload? So, we've got thrivingonoverload.com, which is not just uh, the book and resources from that, all of our podcast episodes, uh, the course, a uh, lot, lot more there. 
And of course, I'll just just go to your favorite uh, book retailer and uh, the book will be there. Wherever good books are sold, thriving on overload. Up now. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, fantastic to have you back on the show. All the best with the book. Um, for those of you listening to Breaking Banks, um, you know, Ross is a friend of, of the shows. Please go and, and order the book. Um, let's get let's help him get on the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, if at all possible. Ross Dawson, um, every success with the book. And thanks for joining us again on Breaking Banks. Thank you so much, Brett. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carla Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.